the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, can everyone hear me? It's okay. Welcome to um, our next series in the way. It's called Understanding the Liturgy. We've done this before, but under a different title, Let Us Attend. We called it a different um, title this time, but it's going to be a little bit shorter. It's seven weeks as opposed to ten, but if you want to go for ten at the end, we're more than happy to. Um, so what we thought we would do is go through the liturgy line by line, action by action, um, mainly referring to this book here. Okay, So the, make sure everyone's got one of these liturgy books, please. Um, it's going to be very useful um, to us. If you've got your own copy, um, you might want to get some pens and highlighters and highlight certain things. Uh, what we want to focus on over the next seven weeks is going through the liturgy, but I don't want to spend or emphasize too much the symbolism behind certain things because sometimes the symbolism is very contemplative, which is fine, um, but we could end up um, really going on a lot of tangents. I'll give you a very simple example. We have candles here, right? And of course, candles represent Christ, light of the world, angels, but also at some stage there were no electrical lights in the church, so candles were used to allow the person to read, to allow the priest to see what he's doing with his hands. So it had a practical function, and once that practical function was no longer necessary, a contemplation was added. And we could do this with a lot of things. So what we'll do is we'll use the language of, this can remind us of angels, for example, and we'll focus more on the text and what's happening in general. Okay, so we don't want to emphasize too much what this action means, what that means, because sometimes we go on tangents um, and it becomes, uh, it shifts our focus from, actu from what's actually happening. Um, when it, in terms of uh, the history of the liturgy, where this part came from, um, a lot of it's unknown, a lot of it I don't know, a lot of it's found in different books where people have different opinions. So we're not going to go too much into the history. The main aim of this is to allow me and you when we go to, the ch to church on Sunday morning and any other liturgy to actually understand what's going on today. Okay? If you're interested in the history, um, you could always enroll in a liturgy unit at St. Athanasius College. A little plug. Um, have a chat to me at the end and I could um, show you what's available. Uh, a couple of other disclaimers. Uh, obviously, the Coptic liturgy today is not what it was 2,000 years ago. Um, it had many changes throughout the centuries, which is okay. Um, we're, allowed to, we're allowed to change um, certain things. Um, some people think that Christ handed us the liturgy in the 40 days while he was on earth. Obviously not. Um, because if you look at the earliest Christian liturgy, um, it's, it was significantly shorter than what we have today. So were the fasts. The fasts were shorter. But <laughs> anyway, so um, things like obviously what, what was handed down to us over 2,000 years was to have liturgy where we come together and there were some uh, foundational parts of the liturgy that have survived for 2,000 years. If you've just come in, make sure you get a handout um, and, a book, and a book. So um, I couldn't find a size table, so I found this table. This will be our makeshift altar today. I have altar vessels that aren't consecrated that everyone could hold, but they're not with me today. Um, uh, but I'll try to bring them next week. I'll open the sanctuary so you could sort of see what would happen on the actual altar table, um, the equivalent of what would happen there. Okay? Today we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to speak about what is liturgy in general. That's just going to be a bit of an introduction to what um, our worship is all about. And the second part is we'll look at the prayers of preparation of the liturgy and how the priest prepares the altar table for the service and some of the bits and pieces there. So today will be, uh, a chunk of it will be about what liturgy is in general. So what we've done last time, and I'm happy to do the same thing if you guys are happy with it, is I've got quotes from various people and we'll read them together and discuss bits and pieces. And if you have any questions, feel free to just yell them out. Um, throughout uh, the talk okay so I thought at the top of our paper we'll put uh, one of the verses from the Psalms one of my favorite verses which is one thing have I asked of the Lord this will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life that I may behold the delight of the Lord and that I may visit his holy temple I think this psalm here has everyone got a hand up I think this particular verse from the Psalms really captures 
what the liturgy is about. It's a joyous gathering. It's like that lovely verse in the Psalms that says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a dweller in the tents of the wicked. Lovely verses that really remind us about the joyful gathering here. Or that uh, verse in the Psalms that, um, by David, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. So I think these um, verses, particularly from the Psalms, really set the scene for what our liturgy is about. Does anyone know what the word liturgy means? That's just a... Yeah, public service, work of the people. Okay, so liturgy is the work of the people. We have the divine liturgy, which is what we do Sunday morning, which is some people call mass, but that's more of a Catholic word. We have the divine liturgy. We have the liturgy of baptism. We have the liturgy of the water. So on um, Covenant Thursday or on Epiphany or the Apostles' Feast, when we pray over the water, the N, that's called the liturgy of the water. We have several liturgies. This is called the divine liturgy. Liturgy means work of the people, not the work of the priest or the work of the deacon, but the work of all of us together. Let's read our first passage from Father Alexander Schmemann, who is an Eastern Orthodox liturgical theologian um, from the 20th century, has a series of great books. And if you want to know where these are from, just speak to me after and I could um, point you in the right direction. So we'll read, we'll discuss. Um, if the quotes get too long, just tell me. All right. The original meaning of liturgy is that it meant an action by which a group of people become something corporately which they had not been as a mere collection of individuals, a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Liturgia or liturgy means more than common prayer. It means corporate action, important point here, in which everyone takes an active part, is a participant and not only an attendant. It's really, really important for us. Okay? So the priest's job is to offer, or the priest's role is to offer the sacrifice. The deacon's role is to instruct. If you realize the deacon always tells you what to do. Stand up for prayer. Look towards the east. You see it, stand up. Worship God. Let us be attentive. Let us attend, which means like wake up. Let us be attentive. Um, in the wisdom of God, let us attend. And then you say with, with the creed. Um, stand up in the fear of God. What else does he say? I mean, I mean, I believe, I believe that this is true. I mean, pray for us and for all the Christians. So the deacon tells you what to do, essentially. Um, the choir is obviously not like there was always a choir but this formality of the choir is probably more recent than other parts of the liturgy or other ranks in the church um, the role of the people is to pray that's our role so for example the priest will go remember O lord the salvation of this holy place and then the deacon will go pray for the safety of the world so what are you supposed to do please god remember this place and this person that's our role our role is to pray together okay so have a think about this my role is to, to have an active part, not to be an attendant. The nature of this action is both corporate and personal. It's corporate because through the unity and faith of its participants, it realizes the reality of the church, which is the presence of Christ among those who believe in him. It is personal because this reality is every time conveyed to me, given me for my personal edification, for my own growth in grace. This next paragraph is really important. Through our participation in the liturgy, we can become witnesses to Christ in our private and public life, responsible members of the church, or in short, Christians in the full meaning of the world, word, word. In other words, the liturgy reorients what we're supposed to be doing in our life as Christians. It reorients our compass, shows us where our true northeast or our tr is or our true east is in our, in our context. The liturgy is considered to be the center or the central act of the church. It has been for 2,000 years. It's probably what um, characterizes the Orthodox Church um, compared to many other Christian denominations. We're very, very, very liturgical. Um, and what's interesting is that there's a lot of um, studies out there on why people leave church and what brings them back. And people think, oh yeah, the solution is to have some really nice music. So a lot of Western churches have been doing that for like 50 years. And there's been studies by them and papers by them saying that it didn't work, that they've entertained their people and that they still have the same rate as most other denominations of young people leaving church. In fact, they did a survey with millennials a couple of years ago 
and they found that millennials actually want a sanctuary as opposed to an auditorium, a quiet place as opposed to a very loud and, and noisy place. What's very fascinating as well is that most experts in this area that actually for a living do studies on these sort of things say that if the church and families operated perfectly, so we had worship the way it's supposed to be worshipped and then after we worshipped we went out into the church hall and we sat together and we ate together and we really shared our lives together and our families worked the way they're supposed to. If these two worked, they reckon you could get rid of Sunday school and youth meeting and probably gatherings like this. Like, that's all you need, which is pretty interesting, right? Pretty interesting. And if you want a, a, a prime example of that, just look to Pope Carolus VI, Pope Cyril VI. In, 11, in 12 short years, his papacy was one of the most effective in the history of our church. And he really emphasized prayer and liturgy to the point that even his priests and bishops, when he first became patriarch, used to make fun of him and write against him in the newspapers. So he's a very good example of that for us. All right, turn the page. Oh, oh, oh sorry, Father Thomas Hopker. Is that on your front page? Okay. A beautiful um, few passages here about what is Orthodox worship about? Because obviously the way we worship is very different to how a lot of other Christian denominations worship, especially in the 21st century where you have these mass gatherings of thousands of people. And sometimes we're like, oh, but why don't we do like them? Maybe we'll get more people if we did that. Well, it comes back to what's our understanding of worship. We'll read together. The tradition from which he comes, someone who doesn't like Orthodox worship, is what we Orthodox Christians might call man-centered. So, disclaimer, I'm not making fun of any other denominations regardless of their practice. We're just uh, emphasizing the Orthodox approach. The focus is on how God affects my life, what I get out of worship, etc., in this mindset, worship must be appealing to me, fit my needs and so on. Personal taste, rather than the faith, often dictates the external form of worship, which can lead to congregations offering traditional, contemporary, pop, folk, rock and other styles of services. So some churches would have like a contemporary service on a Sunday afternoon and a more traditional service on a Sunday morning and you pick which one you want to go to. Appealing to the taste of specific group within a community, yet no one form appealing to the community as a whole. The Orthodox tradition approaches such things from the exact opposite position, understanding as well that how one worships is not a matter of personal taste. Rather than being man-centered, Orthodox Christian worship is God-centered. Worship, as we read in Scripture, must be offered in spirit and truth and must be well-pleasing to God. We do not gather for worship to be entertained, to be relevant, or to appeal to this group's taste at the expense of the whole. While humans have the need to worship, worship must offer a glimpse of the divine, not an affirmation of humanity. Worship must always be seen as focused on God, period, and not on me. So, Father Thomas Hopke, if you've ever heard him, is very forceful. I read it softly. He's like, punch, right? Let's summarize this in layman's terms. What's he trying to say? Um... He's trying to say in, I don't want this to sound like this, but what he's trying to tell us is when we come to worship, we leave our egos at the door and it's not about me. Sometimes, you know, we go to church and we walk out, we go, that was awesome. That, like it was good service today. His mentality is that's beside the point. It's always a good service because Christ is on the altar. It's always good, you know? So his understanding is if you walk out saying, oh, it was a bit boring today, he would turn around, Father Thomas, he would turn around and sort of say, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you were bored or not. It's not about me. It's about God. That's a really tough message in the 21st century, especially where else do you hear a message where people say, it's not about you. It's not about how you feel. No one's going to come up to us in church and go, are you comfortable? Is it okay? Is it too long? Is it too short? Interesting story. There was an um, a, 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 a evangelical Christian band leader at an evangelical church in America who decided to, decided to uh, visit a Coptic church. And he walked into that church and the priest saw him and said, oh, welcome to X and X church. Um, uh, service might be a bit Coptic, might be a bit long, so apologies for that. And he stopped and goes, hey, hey, Father, I, I left that, I came for this. You know, don't make any apologies. This is why I'm here. And I think that's part of our worship. 
sometimes we're a bit insecure as Orthodox. We're like, oh, our services are a bit long. There's too many rituals happening. There's people dressed differently, censors and smoke and processions. But when you go to a uni, uh, uni graduation, what's happening? There's a procession, someone's holding a scepter. When you go to the AFL Grand Final, they walk in a procession, there's this huge cup and they make this big deal and they stand and they sing an anthem and you have to stand in a certain posture and it's very rude if you're doing different things at different times. So this concept of liturgy is not too foreign. So we've got to be secure and say, we're proud of our liturgy. We make absolutely no apologies for it. We're not trying to be relevant and... What you, what's interesting, and I think the Eastern Orthodox Church in America has written a lot about this, is that when you really give the liturgy its due respect, you'll be surprised who walks in and who finds it connecting with what they want. Can we keep reading or is that okay? All right. Um, so like I said, just a bit heavy on the reading just to set the scene of what liturgy is and then we'll get into the practical in a second. Something else by Father Alexander Schmemann. The liturgy begins then as a real separation from the world. Key word here is separation. As we know, God is other to me and you. What does that mean? Like I'm an is. You know, I'm an is. God's not an is. You know, you could, you can measure, this is an is. You can measure it. You could touch it. You could say what it's made out of. God's not like that. You can't measure God. You can't say what he's made out of. You can't experiment with him. He's other to us, which means that this liturgy should be other to the world. We're not trying to make it relevant to what's outside. We're trying to say, no, this is a separate place. And that's why when we come to things like the liturgy, people may emphasize a certain dress code or a certain behavior or a certain outwards reverence to bring an inwards reverence. In our attempt to make Christianity appeal to the man on the street, we have often minimized or even completely forgotten this necessary separation. We always want to make Christianity understandable and acceptable to this mythical modern man on the street. And we forget that the Christ of whom we speak of is not of this world, and that after his resurrection, he was not recognized even by his own disciples. Hmm. When we say holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, we're saying separate, separate, separate. We say, oh, this is a holy place, this is a separate place. And by bringing um, the world um, into here rather than this to the world, or by changing it so that the world will accept it, you're removing holiness. Very nice. Thanks, Travis. So, um, probably should introduce a few people. Travis and Sarah. Um, uh, regular visitors of St. Mary's, but uh, belong to the Ca Anglican Catholic or Cath Ang Anglican Catholic Church, yeah. Very liturgical church as well. Um, how did you find the first Coptic liturgy that you attended? Maybe we'll put you on the spot. <laughs> So you walk out full. <laughs> That's why a lot of people like to go to sleep after the liturgy. They're just a little bit anxious. It was all about our Yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned joy because that's the next paragraph. The liturgy is before anything else, the joyous gathering of those who are to meet the risen Lord and to enter with him into the bridal chamber. And it is this joy of expectation and this expectation of joy that are expressed in singing and ritual investments and in sensing in the whole beauty of the liturgy, which has so often been denounced as unnecessary and even sinful. So here he's trying to say, some people say, what's the point? Why do you have a nice chalice? Why do you have nice vestments? Isn't this a bit vain? He's trying to say, no, it's a joyful thing. When a friend comes over to your house, even though they're your friend and you might have like, like just very relaxed with each other, the right thing to do is to make sure at least your house is a bit clean. If you're going to have dinner, you're going to take out some nice stuff and present it on the table. He's trying to say, if we do that with our friends, why can't we do that? In church but there's also the other end which you see in a lot of monasteries in Egypt which is we want to be very simple as a form of humility in front of the Lord both are okay and we see both in our tradition 
unnecessary it is for indeed we are beyond the categories of the necessary it's obviously not necessary to have this beauty but we're beyond necessary beauty is never necessary functional or useful and when expecting someone whom we love we put a beautiful tablecloth on the table decorate it with candles and flowers we do all this not out of necessity but out of love it's interesting because father alexander's wife wrote a book about him called My Memories of Father Alexander and she speaks about how he used to just go to church really early unnecessarily early and just do random things around church that didn't need to be done like he'll walk around the sanctuary and he'll be like he just likes to be there right so this is someone who's experienced experienced that joy and that's something that we could all experience the church is love expectation and joy it is heaven on earth according to our orthodox tradition it is the joy of recovered childhood that free unconditioned and this is disinterested joy which alone is capable of transforming the world um you could read the rest okay do you have saint irenaeus next on your paper yeah okay so saint irenaeus um from the uh, second century one of his quotes, or slightly paraphrased, our opinion is in accordance with the Eucharist and the Eucharist in turn establishes our opinion. In other words, if you want to see what we believe, look at our worship. If you want to see how we worship, look at our belief. They're not separate. They're connected. Meaning what? Meaning that if we really understood what was happening in our liturgical texts and we paid attention to it, we probably don't need to hear much more in Sunday school when we were kids, in youth when we are getting older. Most of it's in here. Most of the faith you could find in here as we'll, as we'll go through. So if you pay attention to the liturgy, baptism, to Tazbeha, Midnight Praises, to Passion Week, and even on Coptic Reader, on the app, when you've got some time, just pull out the baptism ceremony and just read it as a text. Because you probably haven't read it because you were an infant when you were baptized, right? And when we're baptizing kids here, the kids are very cute and no one really pays attention to what the priest is saying. But if you read it, you'll find some really, really... Um, enlightening things and then you'll be like wow I didn't know that so as Saint Irenaeus says our opinion is in accordance with the Eucharist and the Eucharist in turn establishes our opinion some quotes by Saint John Chrysostom since we're in his church um, just for time go to the second paragraph whenever you hear the words let us pray all together or the Coptic version of that is Ishlil okay Whenever you see that the curtain draws up, consider that heaven is let down from above and that the angels are descending. So this isn't symbolic. It's actually real. The church believes that when we start the liturgy, we are in heaven. Not symbolically, but actually there. But you will say to me, he says, I am a sinner. I cannot come. So sometimes you say, I'm not worthy. Shouldn't come to church. Look what he says. Then if you are a sinner, come that you may cease to be one. Like they say, the church is a hospital, Christ is a doctor, communion is the medicine. A sick person doesn't stay away from the hospital, they come to the hospital. Tell me, who is there among men without sin? Do you not know that even those close to the altar, the priests and deacons, are wrapped in sins? And as we'll look at today, what Abuna says before he begins the service really emphasizes this point, that no one is worthy to be in church or to have communion or to be around the altar but God is the one who makes us worthy for they are clothed with flesh enfolded in a body as we also who are sitting and teaching upon this throne are entangled in sin but not because of this do we despair of the kindness of God and neither do we look on him as inhumane or inhuman and for this reason has the Lord disposed that those who serve the altar shall also be subject to these afflictions so that from what they too suffer, they may learn to have a fellow feeling for others. So trying to say we're all in the same boat. This, by the way, is a very, very condensed version of a very long um, sermon, which he gave to the people because they skipped a saint's feast day to go watch a horse race or something. So he really, really... You could actually like read it today, replace horse race with 40 or soccer, and it'll make perfect sense. <laughs> you have entered... It's really long, but I've made it short. You have entered the church, O man. You have been held worthy of the company of Christ. Look at this. Go not out from it unless you be sent. He's trying to say, if you leave church, if you stop coming, don't leave unless someone has sent you out. In other words, unless the church has said, don't come back, which it doesn't do. Big words. 
For if you go out from it without being sent, you'll be asked the reason, as if you were a runaway, or in some translations, a fugitive. You spend the whole day on things which relate to the body, and you cannot give a couple of hours to the needs of the soul. You go often to the theatre. This is in 4th century, by the way. And you will not leave there till they send you away. But when you come to the church, you rush out before the divine mysteries are ended. Be fearful of him who has said, He that despises anything shall it be despised. Were you to stand in the presence of the king, you would not even dare. But when you stand in the presence of the Lord of all, you do not stand there in fear and trembling. You laugh, provoking him to anger. Do you not see that by this conduct you provoke him more by your very sins? God is not wont to be as angry against those who sin as against those who, when they have sinned, feel neither sorrow or regret. So he is talking about our conduct in church. If anyone ever gets the chance to be in Egypt, please visit the monastery of St. Macarius on a Sunday morning and just watch the reverence that they give to the, to the church. It's beautiful. Um, Amber Bifanius was here last week, as you all know, um, Bishop of St. Macarius Monastery. And we asked him, like, how did, how did you get there? How is your, like, you go in there, you feel like you can't talk. It's different. It's just, it's just you can't describe it. The way th- the monks conduct themselves is just perfect. And he really emphasized that outer reverence breeds inner reverence. So standing still, not talking, having your phone off completely, not moving, closing your eyes. And he sees that in his monastery. And when you go, you could actually feel it. It's like you could touch it. Even to the point where he says that in his monastery, the tradition is when the priest says, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom, the monks in order of ordination uh, or consecration as monks, enter through the Syed sanctuary and congregate around the altar. And as the priest is doing the fraction, they just have their eyes down. They're just not going to look at the body of Christ, just down. That's why sometimes when Abuna comes out, he'll cover the pattern with a, with a veil. They have that reverence there. And they have, they have that reverence even after the liturgy. He said when he became a monk, he saw one of the elders. And after they had communion and took the water, um, well, they were blessed with the water, and then they took the barakah, the, 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 the bread. Um, he saw one of the elder monks and said, Abuna, and he ignored him. The other monk just felt like this. And then in his monastery, they go from there to the refectory where they have a meal. They sit together. The elder leads from the, reads from the paradise of the fathers and they eat in silence and they pray and they're dismissed. And once he finished that, the elder went up to him and said, sorry, Abuna, uh, we hadn't finished the liturgy. I couldn't speak. So in his mind, the liturgy actually, as we also see, continues after they leave the church. Because from the beginning, and we'll see this later on, even um, when you look at the early church, the times of the apostles, the liturgy and the agape table, the, the meal that we have, weren't disconnected. They were connected. Sorry, I'll go off in tangents, but we'll come back. There's a monastery in Greece um, where they have the church, like, see, this is the church, this, this table here, okay? And the altar is over here, right? So this is the middle aisle and the altar is here. Then you exit the church, there's a courtyard, and then this is where they eat, Right? And the head table is here, so that when the head of the monastery sits at the head table, looking that way, and all these doors are open, what could he see? The altar. And actually what they do in that monastery on Sundays and feast days, is all the monks and all the people just rush out, and they sit on their tables, and then the head of the monastery, with his vestments on, a particular vestment, leaves the altar with candles and censers, and they have a zaffa, a procession, all the way to his table. Why? They're trying to say what we do after church, that the fellowship meal is actually a continuation of what we do on Sunday. Right? Um, and that's a huge part of uh, our liturgical worship. And unfortunately, sometimes it's been discounted. Like, sometimes we just run off straight away after liturgy. But if the more authentic thing to do, if, of course, the circumstances allow, is to sit on a table face-to-face with someone else and to share a, share a meal. All right, let's talk about vestments. We're not going to talk about maddens and vespers. We could leave that to another time. First thing they do, the priests and the deacons, is they vest, okay? The priest in the photo there is fully vested, right? Um, it's hard to know exactly 
when certain investments came. We know that Coptic vestments originally were very simple. And then you'll find some similarity with the Byzantine church because at certain times there was some influences, which is fine. So what I did is I looked at the ordination of the patriarch in the Coptic church, which probably is very similar to a Byzantine rite as well. And as they ordained the patriarch, if you remember, when Pope Tawadros was um, enthroned, they put, every time they put a piece of vestment, they say a verse. So if we look at that verse, it will give us a bit of an indicator as to what that vestment is about. The first thing that they do, the priests and the deacon, is they hold their vestments in their hands. So I've got some show and tell here. All right, they hold their vestments in their hands and then they cross. Everything starts or every crossing in, in, in the liturgy is the same. It's always a crossing in the Holy Trinity. And if you've got your own book, maybe put a bit of a star next to every time you see anything regarding the Holy Trinity. So they all hold it in their left hand. You have, so you have two priests. Priest one, priest two, deacons. Okay? A priest, before he begins anything, will go to the other priest and say, I have sinned, absolve me. So I've sinned and the priest is a, can pray the absolution. So he says, absolve me. And then he turns to the people or the deacons in this, cha- in this case and says, I have sinned, forgive me. And they respond, I have sinned, absolve me. So to a priest, we say, absolve me. To everyone else, forgive me. And then, name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. And the three blessings that happen many times in the liturgy and when in, in any sacrament, we do the same three blessings. Anytime Abuna prays on water, he does the same three blessings. Now, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Blessed is God the Father, the Pantocrator, Amen. So, the Father. Then he gives the cross to a, the second priest, or the third priest, the fourth. And they do the second blessing, which is, Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the final blessing, Blessed, blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. And then, that's the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Glory and honor, honor and glory to the All-Holy Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So glorification of the Holy Trinity is the first thing that we do. And if you look at the Coptic liturgy, the running theme is a constant glorification of the Holy Trinity. Then they pray our Father. Then they prostrate in front of each other. And again to a priest, I have sinned, absolve me. To a deacon, I have sinned, forgive me. Okay? And then the priest and the deacon's vest. The basic vestment that they wear, and obviously... This has developed over time, is the white tunic. So if we look under the heading white tunic, it's just a white robe, which all of us wore when we got baptized. So the white tunic is just the basic gear of a Christian. Okay. White robe, which makes him the representative of each member of the faithful. For at baptism, everyone has been vested in the white robe of the new creation and new life. As St. Paul writes, all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the basic vestment. Then he puts on the stole. The stole is an interesting one because it's, um, it's had some development in the Coptic Church. So if I just pull this out, to the naked eye, what does this look like? Yeah, but he said Batrashel, which is a deacon stole, right? And the deacon would wear it like over his shoulder if it was a bit longer like this, right? The stole is the basic vestment of the priesthood. You see it in... Catholic tradition, Anglican tradition, any uh, a conservative tradition that has liturgy would use a stole. Um, the deacon would wear it in a certain way, and then the priest simply just drapes it around his neck. But then over time it moved everywhere, so what do they do? They put some buttons. Okay? And then over time, somehow in Egypt, it just became one big piece. Um, and then eventually, a, part, a piece on the back for some reason was added. That's why you get the the, the back part on the stole. Okay? The stole is split in two. doesn't really have a theological reason. Some people try to apply one to it. But it just simply, the deacon would wear it one way and then you just drape it around the priest's neck. And how you identify, oh, that's a priest, that's a reader, that's a subdeacon, by the way that they wear it. Very simple. Right? But what does the stole remind us of? If you look at the, the verse... From Psalm 133, that we say when the patriarch is vested with the stole at his enthronement. This is from Psalm 133, and you could find this in the 12th hour of Yorubiah. Blessed be God, who has poured his grace upon his priests, like precious ointment upon the head, which comes down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, which comes down to the edge of his garment as the Jew of Hermon at all times. Aaron, oil, beard, as they were anointed priests, they were anointed with oil. 
This symbolizes the grace of the priesthood that isn't earned, it isn't taken, but it's given to the priest. Right? It's the grace of the priesthood given to the priest. Um, there was a controversy in the early centuries over priests who had defected during times of persecution and became pagan worshippers. And then when persecution was over, they came back and they received this priest. And some people said, no, we're not having communion from them. And then there was a council, well, that was local council that was put together. And they said, hold on. The sacraments have nothing to do with Abuna's personal holiness. Nothing to do with it. Why? Because the grace of the priesthood is not something that he's earned, has nothing to do with if he's good or bad. It's a grace given by the church, right? So regardless of what the priest does in his personal life, it does not affect the validity of the sacrament. Really important point. And this, this, this happened in the first few centuries, right? So whenever you see a Buna wearing this, you remember, this is the grace of the priesthood given to the priest. With a deacon, similar thing, okay? Then, the cuffs, okay? They used, um, you could see in that photo some cuffs. The cuffs are nice and long. Um, these ones are quite short, but use them anyway. So these, these are tied by string, but sometimes the Coptic cuffs have a bit of a clasp. So obviously they have a practical function. So you could see that this can get in the way, okay? So the best thing to do is just to tie it up. So the priest just puts his hand in here, pulls the string and just threads it around. And what does it do? Makes it practical for him to move, right? But also it could remind us of something, a spiritual thing, right? Let's read together. The, the, psalm, the verse that they use, one from Exodus, one from Psalms. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorified by strength. Your right hand, O Lord, has crushed the enemies. And with the strength of your arm, you have destroyed the adversaries. The right hand of the Lord has exalted me. The right hand of the Lord has strengthened me. The right hand of the Lord has done wonders at all times. Your hands have formed me and created me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me, and they shall be glad at all times. St. John Chrysostom says something beautiful. When you see the priest administering the Eucharist to you, do not think that the priest does this, but consider rather that it is Christ you see stretching out his hand, not symbolically, but actually happening. So when you see the cuffs on, it's a reminder to me, I am receiving communion from the hand of Christ, not from the hand of the priest. Sorry? Yeah, they're, they're coming back in use, but... Um, yeah, coming back in use. But they, uh, the Coptic ones will come up a little bit higher, yeah. But they're, 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 very, they're very, very practical because sometimes um, this really gets in the way. Okay. So the cuffs or the sleeves are a sign that the priest's hands are no longer his, but Christ's. He will bless the priest and we will receive the blessing of Christ. But it's, Abuna blesses with his hands, but it's not his blessing. It's Christ's blessing. Okay. Next, the belt. Okay, you could see a belt in that picture there. You've probably seen belts on bishops, but priests originally would wear belts as well, right? So they could either have clasps at the front or they could be tied from the back. Obviously, there's a bit of a practical function to them. If you could imagine the stole when it used to be just two separate pieces just going everywhere. So the best thing to do is tie it around and it will stay where it's supposed to be, right? What's the associated verse here? Psalm 18. Blessed be God who has girded my loins with strength and made my paths blameless at all times. Belts, girdles have always been a sign of obedience, readiness, submission, and it shows that the priest has no authority or power of his own, but it's Christ's power. So it's all about Christ. Everything here is about one person, Christ. And then the one vestment that I don't have, apart from the, the hat or the crown, the, um, the cope. In Arabic, they call it the bornos, the big um, cape that, everyone, that people wear on their wedding day as well. Okay. Um, the verse here is from Isaiah. My soul rejoices in the Lord and my heart rejoices in God, my Savior. He has clothed me with, with the gown of salvation and vested me with the robe of gladness at all times. This covers the whole person. It reminds us of the flow of grace, the joy and peace 
It's a very joyous vestment. Um, and uh, it also reminds us that Christ has vested us when we were naked in our sins and our infirmities. So that's a crash course on vestments. Any questions on those? Yeah. Uh, when, when we're blessing the vestments? Yeah, sure. So the three general blessings that the Buddha gives is Blessed be God the Father, the Pantocrator. Blessed be His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Then He says, Glory and honor, honor and glory to the All Holy Trinity, the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. If there's more than one priest, so that all the priests together can join in, they will say the second blessing. So save us 30 priests, right? So the first one will go, Blessed is God the Father, the Pantocrator, and he'll give it to the next priest. He'll say, Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then the third priest, Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then the fourth priest, Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus. All around until they finish. And then the priest that's officiating, the one who will offer the sacrifice, Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Amen. Yeah, that's their way of joining in. The same with the incense box. If you'd realize, when, whenever they say five priests, the, the serving priest, We'll go, blessed is God the Father, the Pantocrator. He'll put incense. We're the next priest in order of ordination. Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Next. But if there's a bishop, one bishop and priest, the bishop will do all, all, the, all, three, all three blessings. So let's say it's like just priests. Each priest holds their own... Holds their own vestment, yeah. Everyone holds their own vestment and the, each priest will do the second blessing and give it back to the serving priest. Yeah. No worries. Any questions on vestments? Great question. How do you decide when to wear what? This is where we get into these little conundrums. Unfortunately, for one reason or another, the Coptic Church is the only Orthodox Church where <laughs> the priest gets to decide what he wears and what he doesn't wear. In every other Orthodox Church, including the Syrian and the Ethiopian, the priest is fully vested at all times. Because a feast or liturgy is exactly the same like a liturgy at a camp. Right? It's one liturgy. Christ is there. It's just as joyous. But for some reason or another, the tradition has fallen out, maybe because we've generally been a very persecuted church. So a lot of our things have been burnt. A lot of our books have been burnt. A lot of our vestments have been burnt. Um, church went through a very dark period in the 17th, 18th centuries. So maybe that's why. But commonly, there's a widely accepted view that at least the priest should wear the stole. At least. In, during any priestly function. Even some people say even during confession. Any sacrament. Yeah, so the, black, so the white tunic is a vestment. It's something that belongs to the liturgy. The black tunic is just uniform. Why is it a tunic? Because everyone used to wear a tunic. If, everyone, if at that time everyone was wearing pants, Abuna would probably be wearing pants now. It's just a uniform. If the church one day decides to change the uniform, that's no problem at all. It's like going to the army. You put on uniform when you... When, but in the Coptic church, we tend to wear it all the time. Um, but in a lot of other denominations, they take it off. Like in the Antiochian or the Greek Orthodox, you could see your, your priest walking in the shopping center without his tunic, which is completely fine. There's, like there's no harm there. Why is it dark? They say because um, when Islam came into Egypt, all Copts had to wear very dark clothes, and we just retained that. And then you may add a spiritual thing and say, it reminds us that we're dead to the world. Um, although I think that maybe applies more to monks, but it's a different story. But if you actually look at the photos of the 50s and the 60s, you'll see the priest wearing like a grayish one of these. And then on top, he puts the one with the long sleeves. That's like formal wear. That's what he'll leave home with. And then at home, when he visits like in his comfortable space, he'll take off the formal wear and just sit with a galabeya like everyone else sitting in a galabeya. So it's more the, you know, the one with the long sleeves? They call it a faragaya. It's like, it's like a jacket. It's like this, but it's split down the middle and it has... Long sleeves. Should have bought more, more equipment. <laughs> Show and tell. Any other questions? You know. Is growing the beard sort of the olden times that we haven't evolved from as well? Yeah. It, if the church decides to get rid of that, it can. There's no problems with that. Yeah. Um, uh, the, it's just exterior things, uniform customs. Yeah. It's like, for example, the monks' headgear. Uh, prior to Pope Shinura, they used to just wear a very simple cap with a like a piece of cloth that just hangs from the cap and they tuck it in here and it meets at the belt that they wear and it makes a cross. 
but Pope Shenouda brought back one of um, one of uh, one stage we used to wear that cow, so he brought it back. So y- the church has the discretion to change these things um, without any stress. Any other questions on vestments? Should we keep going with the preparation of the altar? Or leave it there. Leave it there. Keep going. Okay. So let's open to page. So that's all the introductory things. So at this stage, the priest is vested. Okay. Everyone's in white. Then we get to page 104. This is when the priest will start preparing the altar. Now, during this time, the, the choir or the people will chant some hymns, um, very famous hymns, one on page 101. Again, glorifying the Holy Trinity. The liturgy is just one continuous glorification of the Holy Trinity. So on page 101, we worship the Father of Light and His only begotten Son, and the Spirit, the Paraclete, the Trinity, one in essence. And then following that, a hymn to the Virgin Mary, which we also sing at weddings. We also sing this hymn at weddings. Then we get to page 104. It says here in red, this book's really good because it has the rubrics in there and they're pretty accurate. After this, it says, the priest kisses the hands of the brethren, the priests, and asks them to absolve him and pray in his behalf. So he goes to the priest, I've sinned, absolve me, before he starts. Then he ascends to the altar, and the deacon ascends and stands before him, and the priest places the vessels before him and signs them three times, as we'll see in a second. So he says a prayer. Pay attention, please, to the words of this prayer. This is the first thing that the priest says in the Divine Liturgy, after Madden's, okay? And look at the attitude that the priest is approaching the altar with. O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, who is holy and who rests in his saints, who alone is without sin and who has power to forgive sin. So far, so good. You, O Lord, know my unworthiness and unpreparedness and my lack of meekness for this, your holy service. And I do not have the countenance, the face, to draw near and open my mouth before your holy glory. But according to the multitude of your tender mercies, pardon me a sinner and grant to me that I may find grace and mercy at this hour. What's the general attitude of the priest here? Humility. Humility. Straight away. He's just beating himself up. I didn't have the, like, I'm, I'm not prepared. I'm unworthy. I don't even have the face to like show myself before you, but be kind to me. And then he starts uh, blessing, preparing the altar. So I'll stand here. You would stand here. I'll just stand here. As with everything, he blesses in the name of the Holy Trinity. Okay? He has a few options. He can either use a cross. Okay? Or his hand. Apparently, the hand is more ancient. When he blesses with his hand, he has a couple of options. He could do this, or he could do that. Okay? Does anyone know what this is? Maybe, okay. I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one before. So maybe, possibly. <laughs> but if you look at a lot of Coptic iconography pre twentieth century, Christ is always has his finger here, and he's like this. Some people think we're talking about two natures. It has nothing to do with natures. It's more um, more got to do. Oh, but the nature thing is a bit sensitive in Egypt. It's not with natures, but it's more got to do with where he's pointing. Right. So he's pointing here. Right. Count the sections of your um, finger. What are these things called? Phalanges? The whole thing? No, these sections. A section. Okay. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Which one's he pointing to? The tenth one. Do you know in Tazbaha, the section that goes, directed us to the Yota, the name of salvation and of Jesus Christ. Yota is the tenth letter of the Greek alphabet. It's also the first letter of Christ's name in Greek, Yesos. So this is the name of Christ. So the priest could bless like this, or he blesses in the name of Christ. The Eastern Orthodox Church will do this, which that's I, C, so for the I, C, for the Isos, X, C, Christos, Isos, Christos, name of Christ. So he has an option to either bless with the cross or bless with his hand. If you want to be particular, in this particular book, it says that the priest uses the cross twice and the rest he uses his hand. The cross originally belonged to the deacon, when the deacon comes to say a response, he'll hold up the cross. And you see this a little bit now. 
When he says, Tasitir, he's holding a cross. In Sophia, he's holding a cross. But back to this. Sorry, tangent. Okay. So again, in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, blessed be God the Father, the Pantocrator, Amen. And does the first knot. There's three knots. Blessed be His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Second knot. Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Then he has two more knots. So the deacons tie in this specific way. Two of them three. Glory and honor. Or not honor and glory to the all-holy trinity. This deacon tied it wrong. The Father, the Son, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So he opens um, uh, the, the cloth that's covering. And then as he arranges, he reads the rest. So we'll read the rest and then we'll arrange or arrange. And send down to me strength from on high that I may begin and make ready and accomplish your holy service after your pleasure according to the ascent of your will for a sweet savour of incense. Yea, our master, be, a par- be with us. Be a partner with us. Bless us, for you are the forgiveness of our sins, the light of our souls, our life, our strength and our boldness. And then listen to this. Unto you, un- and unto you we send up glory, honour and worship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now and all times unto the ages of ages. Amen. Again, a glorification of the Holy Trinity. How many times have we glorified the Holy Trinity so far? Several. The whole Coptic liturgy is one massive glorification of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you could see straight away, the disposition of the priest is one of unworthiness, one of humility. He's approaching and he's scared. There's a, a, um, someone was telling me at one of the monasteries is the priest who prays like once a year. And he says when it's his turn to pray... He can't sleep the night before. He can't put himself to sleep, right? That's the disposition that um, one hopes for when they approach the um, altar. It's like uh, um, one priest told me on his cupboard, he has a sign that says, his vestment cupboard, pray this liturgy as if it's your first and last. And that's something that could apply to all of us. Pray this liturgy as if it's your first and last. And then he begins to set up. So these vessels are consecrated with the Holy Chrism. Okay, making them sanctified and set apart to be used in church. You're also consecrated with the Holy Chrism, making you set apart and only used for Christ, Temple of the Holy Spirit. The priest only generally touches this, but you may say, how come I can't touch it? I have communion. This is not holy. It's about reverence more than anything. Okay, so the first thing he'll do is he'll bring the chalice. He'll... um, Make sure that everything's clean. So he'll just wipe it. He'll put it in the chalice box. This is a few hundred years old. We didn't always have this, but possibly once the chalice was knocked over or something, so they thought, let's make a case for it. Has a, it's a very practical reason. Okay. And then, sorry, it's, this table is very small. I couldn't find an appropriately sized table, so I'll just have to make do. And then he'll cover with... Well, the deacon who really put this back. <laughs> I have no idea what doing. Okay. <laughs> um, there we go. So, great deacons will put it in the right order, so he just, just goes like that. Okay. And then he'll cover the chalice. Okay. That's called the, th- we call it the throne. The throne. Yeah, chalice, chalice throne, chalice box, chalice throne, yeah. Commonly known as the throne. Um, we don't refer to it as the tomb, but if if you if it reminds you of the tomb, that's fine. Yeah. On the altar of uh, Anglican Church, there will be the sanctuary, yeah. which is on the altar, and then there's when you open it up, there's the curtains of the. Mm. And then, and so that's for example on, on the um, Easter Sunday that will be open there. Mm. So that's the one that's right at the back. Yeah. 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 Mm. So, yeah. That's different. Yeah. This is just to hold the chalice. Yeah, the, 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 the altar table, just there. Yeah. Originally, you wouldn't have this. You would just have the chalice on the table. But then this was added. I asked how old. It was like 300 years ago. You could look at it like that. Yeah. Okay. No, no, it's fine, but you reminded me of another place where that's in, um, the, the tomb. There's a contemplation on, um, we say, oh, this reminds us of the tomb of Christ. 
but I think we get to that in two weeks. But thanks for that. Um, okay, and then he begins to set up the rest. So, um, for ease of, ease of use, this is the star. Okay, we could explain the star in a second. This is the spoon. Okay, so he'll just give everything a small wipe and place it to the north of the chalice. And then Oh, there it is. Okay. I was looking for this this morning. But <laughs> see, the deacon put in the wrong set. Okay. And then he has the veils and this. The yeah. <laughs> to the north, yeah. North, east. No, no, sorry. It'll be that way. To the south, sorry. South. No. Uh, not what I could find, no. Okay, and then he, he puts the veils. There's different ways to set it up. The, the common one is to put three. I think someone was telling me the, the, they found an old text that said the preacher puts one to his left, one to his right. But commonly now they put three, but forgive me the, the, for the size. This is small, but I think you know what I mean. So they'll put three like this to make a triangle. And of course, whenever you see a triangle, you remember Holy Trinity. Okay. And then we'll lay one here, another one here. And then he could put, obviously it's a lot neater when it's uh, on a large table, large altar table. Then he could put a, ro a, red, a red cloth just so he could see any bits of the body that fall. It's very easy to see. And he'll sometimes secure all this under the throne. He'll place the pattern on the red cloth, secure like that. This is the star. Any uh, opinions as to why it exists? Protection yeah, it's protection, especially from the, the veils. So you could put the veil over it and it won't touch the body. Also some reminders, reminds us of the manger, reminds us of the star. Some people say it also reminds us of the hands of Joseph and Nicodemus when they were burying Christ. But these are contemplations, things that, there's nothing wrong with them, but we don't want to get too caught up in the symbolism because then we miss what's happening, Christ on the altar, right? And then... Yeah, honestly, I, tr I tried to look that up. I couldn't find much info and I've tried to ask anyone that I, like different people that I meet about this. I couldn't find... But what I read somewhere was that he places one on his left, one on his right. I think originally it would be a lot less than this. But it's like, I look at it like a way of a, like adorning the table of the Lord, making it yani, part of that joyful celebration, if you want to say that. Then he places one like this. I'll show you one in a second. And another one. So triangle inverted like so. And then another one on top like so. All right? It's finished now. Okay? <laughs> There's the big one, of course, which will sit here to be used in a couple of weeks' time in our series. Okay? The big cloth called the Prosperian, but we'll talk about that when we get to that. Right? So then, once he sets that up, he then reads the prayer after preparation. So there's a prayer before preparation, and there's a prayer after preparation. And that's on page... 106. He says, O Lord, you have taught us the great mystery of salvation. You have called us your lowly and unworthy servants to be servants of your holy altar. He's talking about the priests. O Master, you make us worthy. Look at that. You make us worthy. If anyone says they're not worthy to come to church, we're not all not worthy. Someone says, I'm not going to have communion because I'm not worthy. Well, we'll never be worthy. So what's, instantly, what does this passage teach us? It teaches us that we are never worthy, but what happens? God makes us worthy. So saying I'm not worthy is not an excuse because God is the one that makes us worthy. Our Master, you make us worthy in the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish this service. So without falling into condemnation before your great glory, we may bring to you a sacrifice of praise, glory, and great beauty in your sanctuary. O God who gives grace, who sends forth salvation, who works all in all. Now watch this. Grant, O Lord, that our sacrifice may be accepted before you. 
Listen to this. For my own sins and for the ignorance of your people. What's he saying there? Accept his sacrifice, I'm the sinner, but the people, ignorance. What's worse? To be a sinner. So the priest is trying to say, I'm a really horrible person. Like the people that are also standing in the church, like ignorance. Like, oh, they fell without knowing that what they were doing. See that? He's making excuses for everyone and he's really beating himself down. For behold, it is pure according to the gift of your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom the glory, the honor, dominion, and worship are due unto you with him and the Holy Spirit, the life giver, who is of one essence with you now, all times, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Again, a glorification to the Holy Trinity. Okay? I'll wrap up very quickly. Before I get to the next part, which is the last part for today, why did he fold these like this? Well, he's going to use this next week in the offertory. So he takes this and he'll just place it here and he'll use it when he's choosing the lamb. And then next week as well, at the end of the Thanksgiving prayer, he's going to cover the pattern. So he simply just goes like that. Okay, that's why it's inverted. Okay. So once he finishes, he prostrates in front of the altar and then he washes his hands. Originally, Abuna wouldn't wash his hands here. He would actually wash it right after choosing the lamb. But now he washes here. Where did we get hand washing from? Right? Saint Cyril, yeah, a lot of it is related to hygiene. Like just like wash your hands. But, but there's also a, a spiritual component to it. But the second time he washes his hands is definitely because he's holding incense and the shoria and his hands get a bit, a bit of charcoal. So he washes his hands. But let's focus on this part for now. There was a bishop of Jerusalem. His name was Saint Cyril. He used to prepare people for baptism during Lent. So they'll come during Lent and he would preach to them on a range of topics throughout Lent. And then they'll get baptized on Easter day. But he would leave a few bits out of his teaching. One of those bits is what happens in the liturgy. Because they would leave right, after, right before the creed. If they weren't baptized, they would leave. And the doors would be locked. And only those who were baptized would remain. So... And he wouldn't explain to them what would happen anyway. Even though they're not attending, he doesn't say, oh, on Sunday when you get baptized, this is what you see. No. He waits for them to get baptized. And then he waits for them to attend their first liturgy. And then he explains. And that's a really important point for us. Why? Taste and see. Thank you. Because the orthodox understanding of learning is taste and see. Experience. And then let's talk about it. So if you've got a friend who's interested in the church, just say, come along experience and then we talk about it that's what our understanding is of growth taste and then see not knowledge first experience first and then let's talk about it so in the year 348 ad we have a he 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 wrote down what he does so we have an, a rough understanding of the structure of the liturgy in jerusalem the year 348 ad which is a very long time ago before there were any splits amongst the churches and i've just taken out one part and this is the part for the washing of the hands. Look what he says. You see then the deacon giving to the priest and to the presbyters who stand around God's altar water to wash their hands. So we have, ooh, we have water jug and um, a small fountain for the priest to wash his hands. Okay. This was not at all done in order to cleanse them from some bodily defilement, for they did not enter the church at first being bodily defiled. The washing of hands was a symbol that we all must be purified from all our sins and transgressions. We wash our hands because they are considered to be a symbol of our actions. In this way, we declare that our actions must be pure and blameless. As the priest washes his hands, he says three verses. And you could find these on page 108. Purge me with him and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be white in the snow. First time, he, so this is one. Second time. Make me hear joy and gladness of the bones of your birth and marriage rice. Third time. I will wash my hands with innocence and go about your altar, Lord, that I may proclaim the voice of your praise. He washes his hands three times. And then now he's ready for the offertory. He washes his hands again a second time. But originally there was only one washing of the hands. But we could talk about that a little bit later. So all we've got up to at the moment is... The point where the bread and the wine is going to be presented. But we just took a long time because I just wanted to introduce the whole liturgy, uh, the, the, the concept of liturgy and uh, some vestments. Sorry that went just a little bit over time, but we're friends. Any um, questions? Any questions, comments?
Are you happy to keep going through quotes next time or less quotes? Less quotes? Less quotes? Okay. Um, okay, so that next week we'll do the offertory, the Thanksgiving prayer, and the incense circuit. Um, and I think we'll roughly squeeze it into seven weeks. What I'm thinking of doing, if we have time, is to use certain phrases as a segue to talk about other things. So, for example, when the priest says, who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy, it's a good chance to talk about how we understand creation and how we understand nature, um, things like that. Okay, any announcements, Marco? We've just got the fellowship of honor in the youth house. Yeah, so join us in the youth house after. Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. We'll say the Lord's Prayer and then we'll go to the youth house.